0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your ESV scripture journal containing the gospel of Luke, will you take that and go with me to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible this morning. You'll find stacks of hardback Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. Take one now. Take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. The text on which today's teaching is based is Luke 24, verses 1 to 53. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 to get us started. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? And at the end of the reading, I will say, This is the Word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, Thanks be to God. Listen carefully to these words, Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, Please be seated. Since Christmas, we have been studying Luke's gospel. And at long last, we come to the final chapter, the end of the gospel, which is in many ways the beginning. Last week, we looked at the crucifixion. Virtually no one would argue over the question did Jesus die? The death of Jesus has been written about in Christian, Jewish, Roman sources from the ancient world. And the crucifixion has been memorialized through paintings, artists. So no one really would argue over the question, did Jesus die? The debate begins when we ask the questions, why did Jesus die? And what happened after his death? Last week we addressed the first question. Today we'll address the second. What happened after Jesus' death? How do we explain the empty tomb? Now there are naturalistic explanations. I want to summarize a few of them for you by way of introduction. First of all, there's what's called the swoon hypothesis. Now, I said that virtually no one would argue over the question, did Jesus die? But some do. There are some people who claim, well, what happened is Jesus really didn't die. He merely fainted. He fainted when he hung on the cross. The problem with this hypothesis is the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers were experienced professional executioners. They were the John Wicks of their day. When they set out to kill someone, they didn't fail. They didn't botch it. They didn't get it wrong. So you see, when these Roman soldiers took Jesus off the cross, he was dead. Dead as a doornail, as Dickens would say. So that hypothesis doesn't work. But there are more. The second one is the stolen body hypothesis. Now, according to this theory, Jesus really did die, but his body was stolen. It was taken. How then do we explain the numerous eyewitnesses, the numerous people who claimed, I saw the resurrected Jesus? He appeared to me. I saw him with my own eyes. Now, I could understand one hallucination. One hallucination, I get that. But mass hallucinations... All of these people seeing the same mirage? That's unlikely. That's unlikely. But maybe it was the disciples themselves who stole the body. And maybe they fabricated this whole story of the resurrection. The problem with that, though, is that according to historiography, many of these disciples became martyrs. In other words, they died for their belief in the resurrection they died for their belief in Jesus would you die for a story you knew you had made up highly unlikely third and they get better as we go there's the wrong tomb hypothesis Now, according to this theory the disciples simply took a wrong turn they took a wrong turn and they ended up at the wrong tomb I mean after all the first people there were women We all know what happens when a woman drives, right? (laughs) Just kidding, ladies. Just kidding. I'm just telling you the theory. These are not my thoughts. The idea here is they just showed up at the wrong tomb. They just needed to go next door. Now, if that's the case, come on, think about it, folks. If that's the case, why didn't some opponent of the Jesus movement, a religious leader of the day or one of those Roman soldiers, why didn't they just shut the whole thing down by shouting out, you idiots, you're at the wrong tomb. You need to go next door. Here's Jesus' body over here. So this one, too, lacks persuasive power. And there's one more, best of all, I think. The twin hypothesis. According to this view... Jesus had an identical twin. So it's Jesus one we see hanging on the cross, and it's Jesus two who shows up later. So it's just like the Christopher Nolan film, The Prestige, if you've seen that one. There are two of them all along, and that's how they do the trick. Now this one is very imaginative because we have no evidence at all in any ancient text about Jesus having an identical twin. So again, it lacks persuasive power. See, there are these naturalistic explanations, but I think there's a far better explanation. It's the supernatural explanation, resurrection. Resurrection. At the very heart of Christianity is the belief that Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior, the Christ, the King, was crucified and raised... Executed and resurrected, thereby showing us that he has dealt with the problem of sin and conquered the power of death. Christians believe this, but we don't believe it on blind faith. We have good reasons to believe in the resurrection. In Luke 24, our text for this morning We're going to see three distinct scenes. They all take place on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Morning, midday, and then the evening. And we'll look at each of these scenes carefully. As we do, I want you to keep your eyes open for two things. First, I want you to watch how the audience widens. More and more people see the resurrected Jesus Luke even tells us the names of many of these individuals. Like any good historian, he's citing his sources. The people are his footnotes. He's saying, if you want to fact check this, if you want to verify these details, go talk to Mary. Go talk to Joanna. Find Cleopas. They can verify it. So watch how the audience widens. More and more people see the resurrected Jesus and watch for the second thing watch how the encounter the experience deepens as we progress through Luke 24 the experience with the resurrected Jesus it becomes more intimate more transformative transforming not just his followers after lives but their current present lives you too can have this deep transformative relationship with Jesus how Let's turn to our text and we'll find out. Scene 1, the morning of Resurrection Sunday, the initial evidence. Verse 1, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So it's very early on Easter Sunday morning. A group of women, we don't know how many exactly, three of them are named, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Joanna. They go to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid to rest on Friday after the crucifixion, after he died. They go to the tomb hoping to feel the presence of Jesus again. See, there's something very mysterious about a tomb, isn't there? It's so incredibly silent, a grave is. It's so incredibly silent, and yet somehow it speaks to us. It's why you visit the graves of your loved ones at times, hoping to feel, to sense their presence. That's why these women go to the tomb. But as they approach this tomb, they realize that this tomb has more than the usual mystery to it. They notice that the stone has been rolled away. This is not a good sign. It's not a good sign at all. See, grave robbery was common in the ancient world. The burial cloths were worth a lot of money. So there were tomb raiders on the loose. At first glance, it looks like someone has stolen Jesus' body in the night. Even at second glance, it looks like that's what's happened because they go into the tomb and Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. It's strange, however, that the burial cloths remained. Why would the grave robbers have left these behind? Surely that's what they would have been after. The women are perplexed, Luke tells us. And in this moment, when they are confused, that's when two angels appear, heavenly messengers. They come to clarify the chaos, to bring meaning to the mystery. The angels say, why are you looking? Why are you looking for Jesus here? Jesus is not here. Jesus is alive. He has risen. Now the women hear this, and they immediately run. They run to find the 11 apostles, minus Judas, the betrayer, where they are gathered with an unknown number of other followers of Jesus, and they relay exactly what they've heard from the angels. But the apostles, they don't believe it. It seemed to them an idle tale, Luke says. They're skeptical. The apostles are the first skeptics of Christianity. Peter himself runs to the tomb. He wants to see it with his own eyes. And he notices the same thing that the women saw. Stone rolled away, no body, the burial cloths remain. Strange indeed, but he's not yet convinced. Now let me hit the pause button on the narrative for just a moment and point out there are two reasons that we should read this account in Luke 24 as reliable. Two reasons that we should read this as an accurate description of what really happened on that day. The first reason is the presence of the women. The presence of the women. In Luke's narrative, women are the first witnesses, the first ones who hear the news of the resurrection of Jesus. Now in the ancient world, in that time... In that place, women were not allowed to be witnesses in any court of law, in any official setting. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that women should be automatically viewed as suspicious. We shouldn't trust them. In that day, it would have been nonsensical to make up a story where women were the key witnesses. No one would have believed it. You see, this detail of the narrative, it makes no sense, no sense at all, unless the facts forced Luke to write it this way. Unless it's what really happened. The presence of the woman. That's one reason. We should read this as a reliable account. Now, the other is the disbelief of the disciples. In the narrative, the disciples are presented as skeptical. Why would they be painted in such a negative light. If Luke was making all of this up, if his goal was to start a new religious movement and recruit as many followers as he possibly could, he wouldn't have made the disciples look this way. He would have made them look heroic, quick to believe, eager to take this message to the world. But they're skeptical. They don't believe. They're hesitant. This is another detail that doesn't make sense unless it's true, unless it's what really happened. We have good reasons to believe in this initial evidence on the morning of Resurrection Sunday. Now, scene two, midday. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So here's what's happened. The women were at the tomb. They heard from the angels. They ran and found the 11 apostles and many other followers of Jesus gathered. Told them what they had heard. No one else believes it yet. Now, a couple of those followers of Jesus have left Jerusalem and they're traveling on this road to a village called Emmaus. One of these travelers is named Cleopas. Luke tells us that, probably because at the time that Luke wrote his gospel, Cleopas was still alive. So again, he's saying, "If you want to fact-check this, go find Cleopas. Talk to him, he'll verify it." Cleopas and someone else, they're traveling. And it's a long trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Nobody likes a boring trip, so they're talking to pass the time. You know, they don't have a Nintendo Switch in these days. they got to do something, so they're talking. They're talking about everything that's happened in Jerusalem in recent days. The crucifixion, the missing body. They don't yet believe, but they're discussing it. And in the midst of their discussion, a third traveler comes along right beside them and butts into their conversation. How rude! But Luke tells us who it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus but they don't yet recognize him. In fact, Luke says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus butts into the conversation. Hey, guys, what are you talking about? What you talking about? And they look to him and they say, do you not know? Have you not read the headlines? Are you not on social media? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who's not heard what has happened? Who's not heard about Jesus of Nazareth? wrongly accused, crucified, and now the body is missing? Have you not heard? See, this whole scene drips with irony. Here these men are talking about Jesus to Jesus without recognizing the one to whom they speak. And so Jesus brings clarity to the chaos, meaning to the mystery, He does two things. First, he tells them the scriptural story. See for yourself. He tells them the scriptural story. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So you see what Jesus is doing here? He takes these men, these travelers, through the Old Testament, from the very beginning of the Old Testament to the end, and he shows them that the entire scriptural story is pointing to him. He is the Savior, the Messiah, the King, the one Israel had been waiting for, the one the whole world had been waiting for. All of the scriptures point To him, he tells them the scriptural story. They like this teaching, but still they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Luke is very clear on this point. They still have no idea to whom they are speaking. So Jesus does one more thing. They finish their journey. They arrive in Emmaus, and they sit down to share a meal together. And look at what happens when they're eating. When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then as soon as they did, he vanished from their sight. So the two things that Jesus does here is to bring clarity, to deepen the experience, to help them see who he truly is, he first tells the scriptural story and then he provides a communal meal He provides a communal meal. Now, in doing this, Jesus is showing us how we too can have a deeper experience of him. How is it that you can come to believe in Jesus, see him for who he truly is, trust him completely? How is it that you can leave your stress and anxiety and depression behind you? That was the condition of these travelers before they met Jesus. How can you leave that behind and trust Jesus completely? You need to know the scriptural story. Immerse yourself in it. Remind yourself again and again that this story is the true story of God and God's world broken in the beginning but now being fixed, being set right, being redeemed by the blood of God's own Son. Immerse yourself in the scriptural story. But the second thing you must do And this is the one I really want to focus on this morning. Is you must immerse yourself in the Christian community. Remember Jesus provides the communal meal. And that's where their eyes are opened. The point is that deep experience of Jesus. The most profound growth in your faith. It happens in community. It happens around the meal. Around the table. A symbol of everyday life. Life together. Christian community Now, here's why I want to emphasize that point so much this morning, because today, Easter Sunday, we'll have probably one to 200 additional people on our campus. One to 200 additional people who were here this Sunday that weren't here last Sunday and currently have no plans of being here next Sunday. Now, on the one hand, I'm so thankful you're here. There are so many other places you could be today. I'm thankful you're here. But on the other hand, I want to challenge you a bit while I have you here. This passage is teaching you that you will never have the deepest experience of Jesus unless you immerse yourself in the Christian community. Life together, not seasonal participation, not Christmas and Easter and when people are married and buried in between and that's about it. No, everyday life, life together in the context of the Christian community, that's where the most profound growth happens. That's where the deepest experience of Jesus happens. So that's scene two. Now we have decisive evidence. Jesus has appeared to at least the two travelers, the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, so they run. They leave Emmaus now And they go back to Jerusalem. That long journey they just made. They go back to Jerusalem and they find the 11 apostles and others that are gathered with them. And that brings us to scene 3. The evening of resurrection Sunday. The second appearance of Jesus. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Now he's in the presence of all of them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they... They were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. Now, this is the climax of the whole narrative. Hang with me on this. Here they are, the 11 apostles, unknown number of others. They're gathered together. In John's gospel, he tells us they're in a secret gathering behind locked doors because they're afraid. They're afraid that those same religious leaders who insisted on the crucifixion of Jesus, they might come after them next. So they're gathered in secret and they're behind locked doors, and suddenly, somehow, the resurrected Jesus appears to them. And the disciples must have believed in ghosts because that's their first thought. They think they're seeing a spirit, they think they're seeing a ghost. So Jesus has them use their own senses to see that he is no disembodied phantom, he's real. He's real. They hear His voice. They see Him. They even touch His hands and His feet, which still have the marks of the crucifixion. Then Jesus Himself exercises the sense of taste. He eats fish with the disciples. Jesus has teeth. He has a mouth, an esophagus, a stomach, Spirits don't have stomachs. Ghosts don't have esophagus. No. He's real. This is resurrection. This is bodily resurrection. But it's a new kind of body. Don't miss this. It's a new kind of body. We've already seen that Jesus can vanish from one place and appear in another. Is this teleportation? Maybe. Maybe. We've seen that in this very secret gathering behind locked doors, Jesus can just appear. So on the one hand, he's solid enough that the disciples can touch his hands, but it seems that he can move through walls, through locked doors. What is this? It's physicality, but it's transformed physicality. It's a new body. Now, you must understand what this means for you. Believer, if you want to know what your future looks like, look to the resurrected Jesus. Unbeliever, if you want to know what your future could look like, look to the resurrected Jesus. And listen to me carefully when I tell you what isn't in your future. You will not become an angel. You will not be a spirit that floats around in the sky or the clouds forever. That's not the Christian hope. Christianity is unique among the world religions. See, there are a lot of world religions that teach life after death. If you live a good life here and now, when you die, there will be mental consciousness or spiritual existence of some kind. That's not the Christian hope. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he says it like this, the Christian belief is not life after death. It's life after life after death. Wrap your mind around that. Life after life after death. In other words, it's not just spiritual existence. It's the resurrection of the body. It's physicality. But it's a new kind of physicality. Transformed physicality, just like we see with Jesus here. You see what this means? One day, believer, you'll have the body you've always wanted. The body you've always wanted. None of the limitations we have here and now. You'll still enjoy so many of the things you enjoy on this earth with these bodies. Sports, music, yeah, I think we'll have all of that. Football, probably baseball yeah tennis no no not even not even the new creation will people like to watch tennis I'm sorry <laughs> but do you see the hope if you want to know your future don't think about floating in the clouds look to the resurrected Jesus transformed physicality now that's the future that's the future but what about the present what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for us here and now? Look at how Luke's gospel concludes very quickly here. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Same thing he did with the travelers on the road to Emmaus, right? And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses now. You're witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Luke's gospel ends with the disappearance of Jesus, but not forever. Not forever. For those of you who have been with us for this whole series, you'll remember why the series is called The Once and Future King. It's from the old legend of King Arthur. According to legend, on Arthur's graves was a Latin in, on Arthur's grave was a Latin inscription, The Once and Future King. The idea was that Arthur was once a great king on this earth, and one day he would return. One day he would return to rule again at the moment of the country's greatest need. All throughout Luke's gospel, Luke has been showing us that Jesus is the real, the true, once and future king. He reigned on this earth once. He reigns even now from heaven. And one day he will return. One day he will return to reign again here on this earth. But it will be transformed Just like our bodies, transformed physicality, when King Jesus returns, he will bring the new world with him. Until then, in the meantime, we, his church, have work to do. That's what he says to the disciples here before he goes up into heaven. You will be witnesses and you will have power. The Holy Spirit lives within us as we bear witness to King Jesus now here where we live and throughout the world and we do that until the day of his return. But when he returns... Oh, think about how great it will be. All the miracles that we've seen in Luke's gospel, you remember them? All the things that Jesus did, they're windows. They're windows so that we can get a glimpse of that future kingdom. When King Jesus returns, the sick healed. No more pain and suffering. The sea calmed. No more natural disasters. The hungry fed. No more poverty and injustice. The dead raised. No more mourning. No more loss. Your loved ones, your fellow believers, you will see them again and you will feel the warmth of their embrace. You will hug them Because remember, physicality, transformed physicality, new bodies in a new world, all because of Jesus, what He has done for us. He is the real, the true, once and future King. Long live the King. Amen. Let's pray. Father we thank you so much for the gift of your son our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life who died a substitutionary death in our place for our sins he has now conquered the power of sin the power of death all of us who look with faith to Jesus we will share in his resurrection one day Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. We celebrate resurrection hope today. Work in our hearts. Assure us and reassure us that this is true. As we come to your table now, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your resurrection. We confess our sins to you, and we know that because of your blood, your cross, your resurrection, we are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll go ahead and grab those communion elements that you received on your way in. If you're a believer, a baptized believer, a follower,